VOA News. This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Here's what's coming up on African News Tonight. The U.S. is announcing more than $200 million in additional humanitarian assistance from USAID and the State Department to respond to the drought in Ethiopia, Kenya, and Somalia. That was Sarah Charles, USAID assistant to the administrator for the Bureau of Humanitarian Affairs on fresh U.S. help to ease hunger from drought in the Horn of Africa. Details coming up. Also, Libya's parliament has selected ex-interior minister Fatih Basaga as the country's new prime minister. These stories and more on African News Tonight. We start with our top story. Mali's military government has accused France of spying after the French military released drone video of what it said were Russian mercenaries staging a mass grave near a military base the French handed back to Mali. Annie Rosenberg reports from Bamako, Mali. Mali's military government on Tuesday night accused France of spying and deliberately violating its airspace in the latest tension between the junta and the former colonial power. Speaking on ORTM State TV, military spokesman Colonel Abdoulaye Maiga said France violated the government's order to get permission for all flights over Mali. In the video posted on the station's Facebook page, Colonel Maiga said there were 50 cases of deliberate violation of Malian airspace by foreign aircraft, mainly French forces. The vol d'avion de renseignement he says these include intelligence gathering flights and drones flying at high altitudes to engage in activities considered spying, intimidation, and subversion. Maiga cited a French drone flight over Mali's Gosi military base on April 20th that he said was illegal. French forces handed the Gosi military base to the Malian army on April 19th. Last week, France released drone footage of what it said were Russian mercenaries burying bodies near the base to stage a mass grave to be blamed on French troops. Mali's army on Friday said it found the mass grave on their arrival at the base so its forces could not be blamed for it. Colonel Michael's statement on state TV did not mention any Russian mercenaries, but claimed that France released the drone footage to tarnish the image of Mali's army. Earlier Tuesday, Mali's military said it would investigate the mass grave. News of the grave near the base first emerged after a Twitter account called Dia Diara posted a video alleging that the French had left the grave when they withdrew. The account, which had a profile photo taken from a Russian social media website, VK, and has since been deleted, claimed to be that of a Malian veteran and patriot. The French military had been gradually withdrawing its troops from Mali since sending them in 2012 to help fight against Islamist militants. But tensions with Mali's military since a 2020 coup led France in February to announce it would pull all troops from its former colony. France and several other countries have accused Mali of working with the Kremlin-linked Wagner Group of Russian mercenaries. UN experts accuse fighters with the Wagner Group of committing abuses where they operate, such as the Central African Republic, Libya, Syria, and Ukraine. The Malian and Russian governments have denied having any deal with mercenaries, with Mali citing only official Russian military trainers who are helping in the fight against Islamist militants in the region. Annie Reisenberg for VOA News, Bamako, Mali. 
the Democratic Republic of Congo has started vaccinations for Ebola to stem an outbreak in the northwest city of Mbadanka. The World Health Organization, WHO, says two people so far are known to have died in the city of over one million inhabitants. According to a Reuters report, the first death occurred on April 21st and the second last Tuesday, marking the Central African country's 14th Ebola outbreak. Around 200 doses of the Ebola vaccine have been shipped to Mbadanka with more to be delivered in coming days. So far, according to the WHO, 237 contacts have been identified and are being monitored. A new series of attacks in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo have reportedly killed several civilians. The attacks happened even as President Felix Tshisekedi is holding talks in Nairobi with some of the many militant groups fighting in the East. Reporter Jafar Al-Ketanti is in Goma in the eastern DRC. He spoke with my colleague Kate Pondarson a short time ago. In the territory of Irumu, a village called Mangobo was attacked and many people were killed. Uh, till 10 this morning, the civil society found eight bodies and... 11 people were kidnapped, with them the chief of the village. And then also we've had fighting with uh, suspected ADF fighters in uh, North Kivu? Yes, uh, the same day, because this attack was in the, in the night, but in the day of yesterday, uh, ADF attacked a convoy of good truck coming from Uganda to Beni, they bounced car and uh, killed drivers. Uh, four drivers were killed and two were injured. And then we also have more fighting with another group. Can you tell us what's going on with that? M23 attacked again the FRDC since the last week. And this night, FRDC uh, was some FRDC positions was attacked by uh, 7 p.m. local time, and since the morning, since that moment, they're still fighting. And just now, the spokesperson of FRDC let me know that they they are controlling the many position of M23, and they say as M23. Uh, did this provocation, they will continue fighting until uh, make hand of their menace, even if talks still continue in Kenya. Now, you brought up the talks in Kenya. So was, was the government in the DRC surprised that the M23 attacked, even though there are talks? Uh, we don't have many information from Nairobi because the government is not uh, communicating. But one thing we know is the first day of the talk, uh, which was uh, Thursday, on Thursday, uh, last Thursday, M23 was uh, with the president in the hall and 
they attacked some FRDC position in Ruturu. That made the president very angry and decided to leave them out and to stop talking. But at this moment, we don't know if talk still continue or what. But the president still in Nairobi. So we think that they are still talking. All right. So the president, President Tishkedi, is still in Nairobi. In Nairobi. Yes. And, and okay. some other some other armed groups uh, were also invited, and some of them, some representatives are already in Nairobi, and others will join them. If not today, it will be tomorrow. That was journalist Jafar Al Katanti in Goma. He was speaking with VOA's Kate Pound Dawson. In February, Libya's parliament, based in the east, selected a new prime minister, ex-interior minister, Fatih Basaga. However, the sitting prime minister of the unity government, Abdul Hamid Dabiba, has said he will only hand power to an elected administration. The dispute led to protests around some of the country's oil production and export facilities. Now, the National Oil Company, NOC, has declared a halt to operations at two major oil export terminals and several oil fields, cutting by half Libya's production to about 600,000 barrels per day. Rianon Smith, managing editor of Libya Analysis, told VOA senior analyst Mohamed El-Shanawi that Libya's oil industry, the lifeblood of its economy, has fallen hostage once more to political division. Yes, the, the short answer is yes, the oil sector has once again been politicised. And, you know, we've seen this throughout Libya's recent history that whoever controls the oil production has a significant amount of leverage over the state authorities because Libya is almost entirely reliant on the oil wealth. So if you cut off the oil production, you cut off Libya's source of wealth and therefore it's a, a big source of, of pressure and has been used many times in the past as a tool to force different governments uh, to do what the protesters or, or rivals um, want them to do. And unfortunately, we are seeing the same thing again now. We've been seeing this trend for the last few months. So since the elections that didn't happen and there's been you know, a lot of different actors trying to get the upper hand in Libya and there have been minor protests and there have been attempts to sort of take over the National Oil Corporation from the inside and trying to remove the chairman Mustafa Sanala. Um, but yeah, this is a, a clear example now of, of cutting off the oil by different groups um, to try and exert pressure and, and change the situation uh, politically by using using control over the oil. But with no elections on the horizon, how could Libya reach a compromise to have one government and not two rival governments? I think, unfortunately, it's quite difficult at the moment. As you said, it's very unlikely we're going to have elections this year, even next year. At the moment, it seems difficult to imagine how we will get to that point. You have two rival governments. Uh, the Dubaiba government in Tripoli has made it very clear that they have no intention of leaving office. Dubaiba has made that very clear. So I think unless he is forced out or put in a situation where he just can't stay, uh, he's very unlikely to relinquish his control of the capital. And then we have the rival government under Rashaga, 
which you know is desperate to take power and has uh, established control over much of the east and the southern parts of the country so i think there's very little chance of a compromised government i don't think we'll see a much of a negotiated solution between them so at the moment it really does seem like uh, you know a contest between these two governments for one to the win um, at the moment it's fairly equal there's a, a stalemate um no one you know uh, dubai has control of tripoli but nowhere else and um, bashaga has control of much of the rest of the country but not tripoli the internationals are completely on the fence so they're not openly backing either side i think in the longer term it's more likely that bashaga's government may end up taking control but unfortunately in the short term i think it's more likely we'll have the reality of two parallel governments competing in libya which is going to lead to greater political instability um in the near future aligned with eastern camp the groups disrupting oil facilities want power transfer to bashaga who is backed by khalifa haftar the eastern military strongman with the goal of heightening western pressure on the baiba to quit would that pressure work Well I think it certainly is creating pressure and as you've rightly said the pressure isn't really on Dubai himself and um, because he's already quite isolated politically and he also at the moment doesn't have access directly to the oil revenues due to pressure from um the internationals on the central bank of libya and the national oil corporation which mean a lot of the oil revenues have been withheld from his government so uh, the pressure is really on the both the internationals um, but also on bashaga himself although hafta and bashaga are in the same alliance that doesn't mean they're completely aligned and it does seem that um hafta's hand has been behind these current protests and that he is using that as a way to put pressure on Bashaga and the rest of the alliance to try and get the job done to try and put the pressure on them to get into Tripoli i think to an extent that has worked we've seen not him go into Tripoli but they have agreed to set up their government in in Sabha and kind of get on a bit with the the process of governing and i think it's notable from the international community that we haven't seen any condemnation of these protests and i think given the the oil prices and obviously the the current um energy crisis at the moment there will be international pressure on the libyan actors to try and find a, a resolution to end these oil blockades but again it's it's very unclear at the moment what uh, how that pressure would materialize and, and what levers uh, they would have to realize that that was rianan smith managing editor of libya analysis speaking with voa senior analyst mohammed alshinawi The United States says it is scaling up humanitarian assistance to the Horn of Africa to help save millions of people facing widespread hunger. From the Kenyan capital Nairobi, VOA's Ruben Chama reports. Speaking to reporters yesterday, a senior official from the US Agency for International Development or USAID said the US government has committed millions of dollars in additional humanitarian assistance to respond to the devastating drought in three horn countries Sarah Charles is USAID assistant to the administrator for the Bureau of Humanitarian Affairs Today in Geneva the US is announcing more than 200 million in additional humanitarian assistance from USAID and the State Department to respond to the drought in Ethiopia Kenya and Somalia This brings total support for the region to more than 360 million in this fiscal year alone. Across the region, she added, the US aims to provide critical emergency food and nutrition assistance, safe drinking water, sanitation, hygiene supplies and medical care. Charles said the level of need was staggering. 
more than 20 million people across the Horn will need emergency food assistance to meet their most basic needs in 2022. This is more than a 70% increase compared to the region's last severe drought in 2016 and 2017. The assistance, coupled with unhindered humanitarian access to conflict-affected areas and greater donor investment, is urgently needed to save lives and livelihoods. The drought, which has left more than 15 million people severely food insecure across the Horn area, is the region's worst food crisis in 40 years. Elizabeth Campbell is the U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for the Population, Refugees and Migration Bureau. In fact, refugees, conflict victims, internally displaced persons and asylum seekers can be particularly impacted by the severe drought. They are especially vulnerable. They can be forced to to move because of lack of access to water and basic necessities. Campbell said the situation in northern Ethiopia is worrying. In Tigray, in particular, in northern Ethiopia, we are facing really almost unprecedented challenges with access in terms of bureaucratic obstruction, conflict, violence, difficulty reaching those who are most in need with assistance. Um, We've seen over the last two weeks small convoys of assistance, the latest one actually yesterday, reached Mekele for the first time in, um, in several months over the last couple of weeks. The U.S. officials said the Russian invasion of Ukraine has exacerbated the problem. Sarah Charles explains. Much more is needed, especially as the Russian Federation's war in Ukraine only threatens to further compound the drastic needs as food prices rise and the region can no longer import critical wheat from Russia and Ukraine. She further urged the international community to help fill critical gaps in the emergency response to help save lives. Ruben Chama, VOA News, Nairobi. South Africa's ruling African National Congress says it will begin a new drive soon to transfer land owned by white farmers to black food producers. The move comes after the party failed to get enough support last year from opposition parties to amend the constitution to allow the government to expropriate land without paying owners for it. But an ANC policy document leaked to the media appears to advocate a far less extreme approach. Darren Taylor has more. The ANC argues that the best agricultural land in South Africa is still owned by a few white farmers almost three decades after apartheid ended. Its critics counter this is because of the government's failed land reform policies, particularly its lack of financial support to black farmers. Many ANC-led projects to establish black farmers have also been destroyed by mismanagement and corruption. The new party document appears to view seizure of white-owned farms as a last resort. Instead, it says it wants to encourage white farmers to donate land. I would say that if the focus of land reform is to become actually just asking those with land to give it up, then actually we've ended land reform. Professor Ruth Hall specializes in the politics of land redistribution at the University of the Western Cape and is a former government advisor. So there is no way that the realization of a constitutional right 
can be left in the hand of citizens to fulfill for other citizens. It is a state responsibility, right? For the state to step back and say, we will merely wait for landowners to offer land and then we will facilitate donations would amount to the privatisation of the entire land reform process. She says the government's strategy of negotiating with white farmers to buy their land has been inadequate as only 10% of commercial agricultural land has been transferred to black farmers since 1994. The debate about expropriation and expropriation with or without compensation is about the state actually not only having a carrot of buying out land, but also having a stick to say in certain circumstances where offering money is not enough, we will actually expropriate in the interests of transformation. The shift to land donations, of course, means that there's not only no stick, there's no carrot either. But Justice Minister Ronald Lamola told VOA the government will not let go of the stick. He says the ANC will use its parliamentary majority this year to pass laws to allow the state to take land from white farmers without compensating them for it, but that this will happen only in extreme circumstances. Instead, according to the ANC document, a land reform and agricultural development agency will be established to solicit and receive donated land. It won't work, says Hall. Is creating a new institution going to be the solution to the failures of the prior institutions? What we need and what three years ago our presidential advisory panel on land reform and agriculture, which I served on, proposed a range of measures to engage seriously at local levels with people who are landless and homeless, including evicted farm workers, people who are small-scale farmers who are constrained in the communal areas, and engaging with them about what their land needs are and how to meet them. All cautions against merely doling out land, whether donated or seized, arguing there's no guarantee whoever it's given to will be able to put it to its best use. She says the government needs to plan meticulously the forms of production black farmers should engage in and where they're needed. Otherwise, South Africa's food production system could be thrown into turmoil. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. Zambia's Anti-Corruption Commission has released its first quarter report for 2022. Commission says it received 306 complaints from the public, out of which 132 were authorized for investigation. President Hakainde Hichelema assumed office in 2021 after defeating Edgar Lungu, whose administration was accused of being corrupt. From Lusaka, reporter Elias Limonia has the story. Zambia's Corruption Perception Index remains high among most corrupt nations in the world, with 2021 statistics putting the country at 117 out of 180 countries evaluated. President Hijrema came to power promising to fight graft. After seven months in office, the Anti-Corruption Commission reaffirmed his fight with an update for the first quarter of the year. Queen Chiwe is the commission's public relations manager. Some reports did not have sufficient details of the corruption offense to warrant any investigations to be conducted. And as such, four cases were referred to relevant institutions so that administrative action can be taken on them. The complainants in these matters were advised accordingly. 
Chiwe adds that by the close of the quota, 61 cases were before the courts with over 4 million U.S. dollars handed over to the state. They are suspected proceeds of crime from a media practitioner, Faith Musonda, with links to former President Lungu. It is also worth noting that during the last quarter, the commission forfeited to the state in a case of being in possession of property suspected to be a proceeds of crime against Margaret Chiselam Sonda, alias Faith Sonda. However, the commission's report has been criticized by an ex-convict turned corruption activist Matthew Mohan. He was among the people sentenced to death by hanging for the murder of a businessman Sajid Aitowara in 2009. Mohan, who was pardoned by the outgoing president in 2001, says the fight against corruption is only lip service. He stresses that more needs to be done, challenges the commission to initiate a robust campaign to sensitize the public against graft as is when urging motorists to pay toll fees equivalent to a dollar. The fight against corruption. It's amazing to see how billboards have been put across the country near every toll gate to say, stop corruption. Yet I don't see such billboards at ministries that are giving millions and millions of dollars of contracts to people. I challenge the new chairperson of the Anti-Corruption Commission that every ministry should have a billboard right at the entrance that this is a corruption-free zone so that every citizen in this country can move to a ministry without carrying money in their pockets to get things done. According to Transparency International, Zambia's Corruption Perception Index remains unchanged from previous years. It is joined by Botswana, which recently scored 61 points, reaching an all-time high since 1998. For VOA, this is Elias Limonia in Lusaka, Zambia. And that wraps up this edition of African News.